You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good afternoon. If you will turn with me in your Bibles, or on your Bibles to 1 Samuel 4, uh, and as I turn in and on my Bible to that, um, you know, to, to the right side of this hall, um, your right, uh, out of the door is a table with some physical Bibles outside. I, I don't know if you all have noticed that walking in every now and then. We have them there because it is a, a great gift to have these Bibles. So if at any point you realize following along is better and easier if I have a physical Bible, uh, please take it as perhaps the first time in history that a preacher asks people to walk out uh, during a sermon. But if, if you so desire and if that helps, then please feel free, uh, do that. It would be of great blessing to all of us um, and I trust it will be profitable for your soul also. Now with that said, the words of First Samuel chapter 4. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes thorn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God 
has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant about to give birth and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, not be afraid for you have born a son but she did not answer or pay attention and she named the child Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband and she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured Church, will you join me as we go to our God in prayer? Worthy are you, Lord, to receive all glory and honor and praise. Worthy are you. So may it be that in this time, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may it be that they are pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our our rock and our redeemer. Do this by the power of your spirit. Apart from him, we do not have eyes of faith to see and hearts that feel. So do this by the power of your spirit that our great Savior Jesus Christ would be known and known in our hearts. We pray these things for his sake. Amen. Amen. There was a time when people said that Singapore won't make it, but we did. There was a time when trouble seemed too much for us to take, but we did. We built a nation strong and free, reaching out together for peace and harmony. Now, those of us here who are old enough to remember the song, already hear the Padang's roar welling up inside of you. You are ready to stand and sing 1987's National Day theme song. We are Singapore. There's really something about a nation's song that encapsulates who they are, their, their values, their beliefs, who they want to be. And, and in many ways, this story of triumph through adversity, grit and grind, hard work and dedication, is very much baked into our Singaporean psyche, isn't it? it? It's a large part of how we understand ourselves as Singaporeans today, or at least that's how we are thought to understand ourselves. That's how national songs work. So I wonder what you think of the following national song. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, a song that is passed down from generation to generation. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation. Our fathers tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. What sort of people can sing this kind of a national song. Psalm 78 shows us that 
This is not the sort of song that sings of uh, forefathers triumph, but failure. What sort of a people is this? Well, well the, the answer is actually quite straightforward. God's people. And this is the sort of song that God's people sing. If you are a Christian today, church, have you considered that this is our song, your song and mine, and that the events of First Samuel 4 that are recorded in this song is not just a matter of ancient tales for, for curious minds, uh, but, but it is a sort of thing that is passed down from generation to generation of God's people, the, the blood that courses through our veins. And, and if you've never sung a song to this effect, or if you've never thought of the songs that you've sing as a Christian to this effect, or if you're here and you're visiting, thank you for being here, and you find all of this just very, very, very weird, then that's exactly why God has given us First Samuel 4. This chapter of God's Word will teach us how to sing the song of God's people, a sort of song that stares dishonor and defeat and shame right in the face, and then somehow, finds the glory at the end of it all. Let's go to God's Word. What happens in our text? Well, we learned so far that, that this book of 1 Samuel, it has really been concerned with the person of Samuel. But, but for the next few chapters, from chapters 4 to chapter 7, the person of Samuel will almost recede to the background, and, and the camera will pan to Israel. We're going to look at two events and two scenes in each event. First event, glory disregarded. We find ourselves in our text, if you look with me in your Bibles, this is an Israel at war with the Philistines. They go out to battle and then they find themselves defeated. 4,000 men dead. It's a crisis. And, and, and so the text goes on. The camera zooms into the war council. You start hearing what the leaders, these elders of Israel are murmuring. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Great question. They were savvy enough to recognize that if the Lord had stood by them, there's no way the Philistines would have overran them. So surely something of the Lord is at work here. They started out with the right question, but wrong answer. What did they say? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from our enemies. This Ark of the Covenant, if you're unfamiliar with it, it was a golden box overlaid with, with, with gold. Uh, a wooden chest overladen with gold and it was the physical representation of God's presence with his people. And, and here's what they're saying. Here's what they're effectively saying. If the Lord is not here, then let's bring him here. If his presence isn't here with us, let's bring him here. Now don't be deceived. This isn't pious worship that seeks the presence of the Lord. Instead of seeking the Lord in humility, they thought to summon the Lord to themselves in pride. The Lord has defeated us, so let's summon him. Isn't there something just wayward about this sort of logic? But so the people did. And so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the covenant of God. It was already bad enough that they were trying to summon, look at how God is described, the Lord of hosts, literally the Lord of heavenly armies. It was bad enough that they were trying to do that. It, it, but, but, but what's even worse is, as they were going through this attempt to, to call in um, power on demand, a speedy delivery of some sort of God's blessing, the doorbell rings 
and they find that their delivery men are Hophni and Phineas. If this were a movie, this would be scary music time. It's the ominous sort of music building. And you should know this if you've been reading and following with us through First Samuel 2. You know that these guys, Hophni and Phineas, they are the degenerate priests. They used their roles as priests. Instead of guarding God's holiness, they committed sinful, sinful things. They used it for their own gain. Public sin against God and the people. And so God had pronounced judgment against these people. He had promised to put them to death. Come on, Israel, is this really a good idea? Well, we, we have something of a parallel to this, don't we? In about three months' time, um, people will gather around table, uh, most of these Chinese people, Chinese New Year, but it isn't the reunion table that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about something else, uh, a little bit hidden in the shadows, the gambling table, the gambling table of our Chinese New Year gatherings. And, and if you've been around Chinese New Year gatherings, you sort of know how it, how, how it works. Cards swiftly distributed, people looking around somewhat furtively. And then you, you, you observe someone playing at the table and you see a losing hand is dealt. What should gamblers do? Well, gamblers know themselves that the time that they should have walked away from their hand was really the previous hand. And receiving a losing hand is meant to awaken you to that reality that you really shouldn't be playing so much anymore. You should be walking away from the table. What do they do instead? They double down. You've seen this before. And they, they don't just double down, mind you. If, if you've noticed it and you've observed it enough, they start whipping out their mandarin oranges or they google images or god of prosperity and then they start placing them next to their cards it's as though they 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 recognize that something is going wrong and they start trying to summon these things summon some good fortune on their side now church the more things change the more they stay the the more they stay the same sometimes don't they israel in some sense was the forerunner of these gamblers who can't stop themselves from doubling down on their sin that they're no better than the superstitious ones who summon their gods in a bit to get gods on their side. They were the main characters and God was merely their means to an end. And do you know what's worse? What's worse is that they really should have known better because they had the ark. Let's camp on that. What was this ark of the covenant? Why does it matter? We, we, we know from earlier parts of the Bible that this ark was how God's glory was displayed. The ark, when we see it, we are meant to think God's glory. And Israel knew it. They are meant to think of chapters like Joshua chapter 3, where the ark of the covenant stands in the middle of the Jordan River and the waters stop so that his people can cross. It's that sort of picture of supreme power. Who is a God like this God? And in one sense, Israel correctly recognizes that the glory of God is bound with his greatness. Glory of God, greatness. But there's more. Think about the parts of the ark with me. You can't see it here, but inside this chest, the, the first one of the key things that, that is inside of it is the thing called the testimony. If you remember your book of Exodus, that's the two tablets of stone, the law written on it. And, and the, the Ten Commandments inscribed on it, those things were held within this Ark. Um, this Ark of, well, it's the Ark of the Covenant. So this testimony was written proof of the covenant that God had made with his people, Israel. It represented God's word to God's people, his perfect instruction for their lives, and the sort of instructions that they had agreed to live by. Holy law and holy words. 
given to govern a holy life before a holy God. So the testimony is inside. And then look up, look at that top layer. What we see is the cherubim or the angels that, that are being described here. And they have their wings spread out and their gaze is downward facing. Why? Because this ark was an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality. Its cover was meant to be a three-dimensional illustration for us of what happens when God condescends and comes down to dwell amongst his people. Even the angels, they avert their gaze in awesome reverence. But the last component is the most important of them all, right where the angels are resting. That golden slab is called the mercy seat. It's what covers the ark. It's what's in between the testimony and the cherubim and the presence of God. And once a year, once a year, the high priest was meant to purify himself through elaborate ritual and then sprinkle. He would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial bull and goat on the mercy seat. All of this was to remind the people and even the priests themselves that they related to God only because of his mercy that in the presence of perfect holiness, we know that we deserve wrath. But in his mercy, he accepts a sacrifice in their place. Put together, this ark, it's meant to tackle and tease this tension that runs throughout all of the Old Testament. If you've ever wondered what the Old Testament is about, what is that main tension, this is it. It's the tension of a holy God dwelling with a sinful people. Friends, I don't know if you've thought about it that it really is quite a dreadful thought that this God of supreme power and holiness, he comes and he dwells amidst a sinful people. And far more dreadful then is the thought that if he comes, what if the first thing he sees is the testimony of his covenant, his word that we have regarded, his laws that his people break time and time again, the same sort of laws that condemn his people to judgment. What if that's the case? But thanks be to God, The Ark of the Covenant is not constructed with the intention to condemn. Rather, the first thing that God's presence meets with is the mercy seat. Listen carefully. This is what it's like to regard God's glory. God's glory is regarded not just when you see Him as great, but when you trust in His mercy and you receive it with thankfulness. Put another way, the purpose of this Ark is to teach us that God's glory is rightly recognized when you receive his grace. And grace here is not a cheap thing. It's not just pass, go, and collect $200. Grace means that you are entirely dependent on him. Why else would you need his mercy? So when you behold this God of supreme power whose happy relationship with you depends on his grace, what sort of fool thinks that they have the right to summon God, arm twist him into action, direct his glory for their immediate happiness. Well, fools that Israel have been, they carry on cheering. We see this in verse 5, and we see a picture of glory that is disregarded when we relativize it. First, we saw that glory is disregarded when we manipulate it this way. We think we have the right to summon him and direct him according to our purposes. Here we see, carrying on in verse 5, that all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded and fear was struck into the hearts of the Philistines. 
What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? The ark is here. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. It, it might sound like things were going well for Israel. Their, their enemies were spooked. They were right to count on God showing up to judge the wicked. And about that, they were exactly right. God is showing up to judge the wicked. But not in the way that they had expected. Beware the cornered tiger, especially when God is no longer in your corner. Rather than turning to flee, the Philistines fight. And they win. And great was the slaughter for 30,000 had fallen. Think about that. That's this room multiplied by 10 and then 10 again. What a tragedy. And among them, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What's going on here? The Bible is showing us what it is like to disregard God and His glory. We do so when we reduce Him or we relativize Him into something like every worldly God. We do this when we treat Him like every worldly power. Think about it. Think about the Philistines and their theology. They were correct. They were right to recognize God's awesome might, but they were wrong to think that He's like the other gods. In fact, they describe Him as gods in the plural. The correct response was to get right with God, not get rid of God, but because they think that God is like the gods of their world and and every earthly power, they continued to war against him. And while it looks like they won, it very much looks like defeat in the moment with the Philistines capturing the ark, we are going to see in the next two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, that this capture is really no more than God's victory lap of judgment over the Philistines. Spoiler alert, God, God is going to use this sort of victory to show them that all they've done is won their way into greater judgment. And we see that in the next chapters. But what about the Israelites? Well, in, 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 in a very deep sense, they show themselves to be just like the nations. God for them has been reduced into a formula. We are God's people. So surely God will be on our side. The ark is here. So surely God won't let his glory be put to flight. We've done our religious routines, so surely he is going to bless us. Church, God does not work this way. Maybe that's the way that the gods of the nations work, but that's not how our God works. His glory will not be manipulated or relativized. In fact, his glory will accomplish his purposes. He had promised judgment on the house of Eli, and now his purposes to cleanse and reform his people, they are coming to pass. Church, do you know this about your God? That our God will fulfill his word even if it means his perceived defeat and dishonor. Are you familiar with such a God? A God who will swiftly allow you to be disappointed in him? Maybe even ashamed by him? If only, if only it will awaken you to the illusion of your false relationship with him. What else does this teach us? We are to beware the sort of pride that says, I'm going to manipulate or tweak God's glory for good defined on my terms. Friends, have we crept ourselves into a superstitious sort of Christianity? I I know that there are some people, well-intentioned, who come and they think, you know, 
back then when I was in a desperate situation, I promised God, I, I just promised God that if he gave me an A for my exams or if he gave me that job or, or that relationship or that promotion that I wanted, then, then, then I'll show up to church. Then I'll show up to church. You may have gotten those things. God may have graciously and providentially blessed you with them. But why are you still here? Do, do, do you think that if you don't do these religious duties, God will smite you or that you've got to continue doing them so that God will continue blessing you? That's not the way he works. He, he does not need warm bodies for these cold furama seeds. He really doesn't. Or, or, or maybe you're not superstitious. Maybe you're just, I don't know, you're just little stitious. Yeah, just a little bit here and there. You know, you, um, you tend to confess your sins a little bit more right before your plane takes off. You tend to uh, tithe more punctually when, when bonus season and review is coming about. Um, may, may, maybe some of these things. But, but church, whatever the case is, this text, the Bible, God's word calls us to test our hearts. The main point isn't for you to modify your behavior. Please, by all means, continue reading your Bibles. Continue confessing your sins. Continue coming to church. Continue coming to church. But please make sure that you know the person of God, His holiness, His grace revealed in Jesus Christ. Make sure that as you go about these things all the day long that you have not reduced God to a philosophy and a pattern for your manipulation. Know this holy God. And our text today gives us a clear litmus test, a way to to think about it, uh, whether you've fallen into this sort of a trap. Think about your response to defeats. The appropriate response for the Israelites after their first defeat, after the first time that 4,000 fell, was repentance. The conditions and these things are clearly laid out in God's word. Read Leviticus 26. God has defeated them through their enemies because they are not right with him. Turn to him. Don't rush to manipulate him to problem solve your immediate circumstance. My friends, the same warning goes out to us. I'm not saying, I want to be very clear because I know that there are many of us here who know real tragedy and real injustice. So I'm not saying that behind every tragedy is God wagging his finger and disciplining you in, in one way, shape or form. But then, even then, will you consider what your response to defeat is like? Will you consider that these unhappy days and unhappy situations in your lives might just be one way that idols are being exposed? That, that, that it might be revealing that there's something you worship more than the holy God? How do you respond to these unhappy days? A failed relationship, a promotion lost, a person whom you care deeply for, falling into some sense of affliction, or just a bad day all around with things not going your way. Do you rush to multiply your tragedy by doubling down on your idols, rushing to ask that God would simply fix your situation without first wondering if there's something deeper to be addressed? Have you considered the great value of being humbled, whatever the circumstance? Do you remember that this is the God in Hannah's prayer, chapter 2, this is the God who brings low the proud and exalts the humble? I'm not saying be emo all the time. (laughs) 
But, but, but I am saying that it is a good thing for our souls to be humbled before the only holy God. Blessed, says Jesus, are the poor in spirit, those who know their need of him. And Redemption Hill Church, here's the good thing. I've, I've seen this amongst you. I know that this blessedness, this blessedness is, is here amongst our congregation. I know that there are those amongst us who have known defeat in the eyes of this world or even events where sin is brought to light. I remember a devastating incident where this person lost all standing in the eyes of the world and it was a painful time. But I also remember this person saying that this is the best thing that has happened to me. For it is far better for me to reckon with my sin and get right with God than to continue living a lie before God and man. Such a response is only possible, it's only driven by rightly regarding God's glory. May it continue to be so. So press on, Redemption Hill Church, beloved of the Lord. Do the joyful work of slaying idols. Lean on his mercy. Knowing this glorious God, it's worth it. Having seen glory this regarded and having thought about what it's like to regard it rightly, we carry on in our text. What happens with glory departed? The action continues. Second event, two more scenes. The first scene. What is it like when we see a lifetime of disregard? Well, look with me in verse 12. A runner, a man of Benjamin, he makes his way over. That's more than 30 km based on the geography of that time and he's covered in shame. Thorn clothes, dirt on his head. And then the camera pans and we see Eli. And it's just sad. We get a picture of someone who has sincere affections for God. See how his heart trembled for the Ark of the Covenant. But we also know that this is an Eli with sincere and and many times stronger affections for the world. Amidst the uproar of the city, we see an Eli sitting, watching, and waiting with a trembling heart. He hears the uproar and he asks, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. As Eli began, so he ended. As he was introduced to us in chapter 1, so it is now. Just enough concern for sitting, watching, and waiting. But never enough for decisive action. That's why God's word of judgment came against Eli. One, two chapters before, chapter 2, we see that God says, Why do you honor your sons above me? By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. And then in chapter 3, God tells Eli, I am about to punish your house forever for the iniquity that you knew because your sons were blaspheming me, but you did not restrain them. This sort of affection for the things of God without action, it is true of Eli and it is true of Israel. His sons were not committing secret sin. They were committing gross, public sin. They were misappropriating the sacrifices, stealing from God. They were abusing the women who came to the temple. They were blaspheming God's holiness. 
What they needed was not just words of kindly counsel from Father Eli. What they needed was to be decisively removed by Eli and Israel. Look, I, I, I want to be clear. This man was 98. He was well entitled to sit. But, but, but there's a sense in which the opening and closing pictures of Eli, um, we first meet him in chapter 1, they, they, they paint this sad picture of a passive priest who cared just enough just enough to sit in judgment over Israel, but to never stand for action. Just enough to fatten himself from his son's illicit gain, and so he falls with the judgment that comes upon their sins. The Hebrew word for heavy, Eli being described as O and heavy, is kavet, and the Hebrew word for glory, the glory that departs is kavod. They share the same root word, you can hear it, kavet, kavod, and the author is making a point. He's not just describing Eli's physical appearance. He's making a point that this priest who did not correctly weight the heaviness of God's glory ends up dying by his own weightiness. Sin returns on our heads. Friends, the priests of God are meant to stand at service in the temple. That's how they're always described in scripture, the priests of God stand at service for there's a glory to God and there's a mercy and a grace to impart. They stand because there's serious work, there's serious mediatory work for a sinful people before a holy God. But here we have a picture of the priest who sits and he sits in shame. And this shame, it spills over to those in the land. Verses 19 to 22. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas the adulterer, she finds herself so consumed with grief over the ark's departure. Where this representation of God's glory is gone, even the greatest blessings of life grow grey. The birth of a son so valued by their society, we think of Hannah, how she yearned for a son, and we think of the delight that we know all day long through baby dedications and, and, and things like it. Uh, these delights and glories, they're of no consolation to this poor lady, and she dies in the throes of a traumatic childbirth. Her son now bears the name Ichavod, which means the glory has departed, or where has the glory gone? And, and the more you think about it, the more almost radical and serious it seems. Imagine we've hopped into a time machine and we are in the early 2000s in America, and, and, and little Jimmy is his first day at school. He shows up to school and he says, Hi, I'm Jimmy. What's your name? Hi, I'm 9-11. It, 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 it's, it's really that sort of radical national shame that a child now bears. You know, we, 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 we laugh because it almost seems too ridiculous that sin splatters over and it colours these things red and grief just hangs in the air. And, and you might think that it is melodramatic, but there's something really instructive about this scene. There's something instructive about her grief and the priority of her lamentation. How she bemoaned the loss of God's glory. For what is a people without their God? In some sense, her parting words, she almost got it right, tells us that she named her child, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. Almost right. The reality is that the ark of God had been captured 
because the glory had departed from Israel. The glory had departed the moment Israel disregarded God's sin and, and tolerated the evil priests. The glory had departed the moment they tried to manipulate it for their own gain. And the ark's capture was but its representation. Here's the instruction. We are meant to see that God will not abide evil. Where his glory is being perverted, he will not allow it to dwell. Where his grace is being scandalized, he will withdraw it. And he will take decisive action against it, my friends. Whether in this time now or in the time to come, he will take action against it. And this grief that she sees and that we think through radical, it is justified. And it will be seen to be justified on that final day when all sin is called to account before God's glory. So her grief, it is instructive, for she challenges us to think and consider how do we relate to God's glory. If you stand relatively unaffected by these matters, and especially, friends, especially if you stand in a place of spiritual leadership, some form of spiritual authority even over someone, then consider this warning. Do you and I live a theology of just enough? Just enough to know the things of God, but never enough to take action. Just enough to master God's word, but to never be mastered by it. Just enough to spot sin and, and be so good at spotting it all around you, but never enough, never enough to bear the burdens of another, to help them put sin to death, to help yourself put sin to death. We can go on for a long time about what this just enough can look like in the Christian life. But our prayer, church, surely our prayer has to be that we will never be content with a Christianity of just enough, God in a box. The Apostle Paul, he reminds us that such things, they are recorded for us in the Old Testament, they took place as, as examples for us that we might not desire evil. And if the reactions of Phineas' wife seem too drastic for you, too radical in your sight, then consider that maybe you just have too low a view of God's glory and just how much we need it. Our text ends on a somber note like this. We've seen glory disregarded. We've seen glory departed. And now we turn to the final point. Where is the glory? How does glory dwell for the faint-hearted? Earlier on, when I read from Israel's National Day song of Psalm 78, I left out a couple of words. It actually begins this way. I will utter dark sayings, things that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and the might and the wonders that he has done. How is that possible? This, the glorious deeds of the Lord, the might, and the wonders he has done? Church, the Israelites can sing boldly about their shameful defeat because they are teaching their hearts to trust in God's glory. Uh, a more complete view of the narrative helps us to understand this. In the next three chapters from five all the way through to seven, we are going to see what happens when glory departs. God's glory hasn't left to retire on a beach in Bali. It departs to secure the victory for his people. We are going to read about that. It, it does not just look upon the suffering of 
Phineas's wife as though she were collateral damage or an object lesson, but it's going to go out, it's going to defeat idols, and it's going to return to proclaim victory. And all of this to tell God's people that judgment is not the final word. Glory secures the victory, and then it returns in great power. And that's the good news. So come back next week if you want to think a little bit more about that. But, but with, with this larger frame in mind, we can see how sinners and sufferers like you and me, how we can love God's glory. Knowing his judgment is a heavy, heavy thing. And while the judgment that he brings can feel like defeat and even shame in this moment, judgment, my friends, it is never the final word for God's people. Isn't that what we see in Jesus Christ, the glory of God himself? Isn't that why the Apostle John writes in his opening address in his gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace was the intention of the ark. Grace is what it means to rightfully behold God's glory. And when we show ourselves weak to fulfill its intent, when we show ourselves weak to pervert his glory and his grace for our own means, God shows himself strong. He gives more grace by coming himself in Christ to show us true glory. But how exactly does this Jesus do so? Uh, I want us to think, as we have thought about the death of Eli, the contrast between the work of Jesus and priests like Eli. Remember, priests, they stand and they attend, for there is great work to be done. But instead, we, we find this Eli who neglects God's glory and he's seated in shame. And what about Jesus Christ? How is he described? What is he doing right now? What does most of the New Testament say? Well, surely he has to be standing in service, right? That's what priests do. But no, most of the New Testament, over 10 times and even more explicitly, they describe this Christ as a seated priest. How is this so? Hebrews 10, 11 to 12 reads, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Church, behold your Jesus Christ, how he stands and how he attended once and for all, and in our place condemned, he stood. And having accomplished that work, having taken on our shame, having finished it, having finished it, he is seated in glory. It is done. All the judgment we deserve, it is done and it has been born. And this great high priest of ours, he takes it upon himself. He takes on our shame. We, we have abandoned his glory and we are destined for this sort of a shame. But he takes on our shame and he destines us for glory. Behold, your seated priest, that work, it is finished and guaranteed by his work and his life. Do you see the decisiveness and the finality of our great high priest? Oh friends, we have so much to love. 
of this shame of our seated priest. What does this mean for us today? Our church, as the ark thought God's people about relating to God's word, surely we must think also today of how we relate to this word. Now I know for many of us, um, the Old Testament is difficult to read. What do I do with this? But read this with your seated priest in mind. If you read it and you don't really know what's going on, here's a good question to ask yourself whenever you open scripture and you read it. Ask yourself, how is God's glory, especially his grace, being known here in this part of scripture? And, and if you realize that God's glory seems different from what you would normally expect, then that's a good thing. Rejoice! For you're seeing how God's glory is different from the glory of this world. Read these things as God's loving discipline that helps us to regard his holiness. And having read these things, pray. I wonder if you've ever prayed that you would see his glory. Now, I'm relatively young, but I've spent a fair amount of time teaching and preaching and looking at God's word. But it was only just this past week where I was telling my wife that in the middle of the week where I was teaching at a Bible study that it just struck me as I was opening God's word, just how little of God's glory I rightly understand. And it would do all of us well if you have never prayed this before. Pray, pray that God, let me see your glory. There's so much more of God to know. Pray that we would see it. And, and pray that we would see it in, in our time of devotion. Pray that we would see it in our church, in our gathering, in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we welcome strangers, in the way that we love sinners, in the way that we worship God. Pray that our church would be the sort of church that loves God's glory. And pray for our leaders. How our leaders need such prayer. How we need to know as ones who have to give an account for ourselves and all of you that our hearts are gathered and that we love the glory of God. Pray for your leaders. Finally, having read, having prayed, sing. Sing the song of God's people. We really are to tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, the wonders that he has done. But here's the catch. Any of you who have ever sung a Christian song before, you know the catch. You can't really sing it until you have actually known it. So we come back to that same question. Do you know what it is like to rightly receive this grace of God? We will have a time of confession and assurance later. Do business with God. Work these things out in your heart. Is there sin against a brother or sister that has to be resolved? Is there something of that recognition of the idols in your life that have to be put to death? Resolve to put it to death so that after we are done with confession and assurance, you might sing great songs. We are going to sing of a Jesus who is strong and kind. Do you know this Jesus? Resolve in your heart in this coming time of confession and assurance to make sure that you are right with him, that you know him and that you love him, that you might sing greatly and tell each other of his surpassing greatness. And, and if you are here and if you are not a Christian, you have been very kind to sit throughout and, and, and listen to us. But I, I want you to know this. I want you to know that in, in the song that we will sing after our time of confession and assurance, there is a verse in it that says, Jesus said that if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on the cross that he will come to me. My non-Christian friends, are you lost in your sin?
Are you done with dabbling with your idols? Glory has come. He has taken on our shame that we might now go to him. Will you go to him? He invites you himself today. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our gracious God, your glory is not like anything this world can behold. It is not like the works of human hands. It is far greater. So great it is. Who is sufficient to behold it rightly? Yet by the power of your Spirit, you have shown your glory to us in Jesus Christ. Strong and kind is he. Oh Lord, I pray for all of our hearts. We find it so easy to stick to our idols. We find it so easy to be stuck in patterns, patterns that we even hate, sometimes even to the point of not knowing if we should hate ourselves, but you love us and you shower your great affection upon us and you hide us in your glory and you give us a greater hope. I pray for all of my brothers and our sisters and sisters that we will be once resolved to live by your glory. And I pray for those who do not yet know you, Lord, do the work that only your spirit can do. Help them to see that unlike the powers of this world, at the center of your glory is your grace and we can rest in that. So help us, Lord. We pray these things in the name of our great Savior and for his great sake. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg. 